Please take your Bibles and turn them with me to the book of Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians 6, if you're using these uh, black Bibles uh, that are scattered throughout the sanctuary for you to borrow or keep it, that's on page 920, uh, Ephesians chapter 6. And they lived happily ever after. When we, when we read a novel, when we see a movie, when we invest time in a story, most of us tend to appreciate some sort of peaceful resolution. Uh, we don't mind tension in a, in a novel or a movie. In fact, the, the tension is what makes the story interesting. But typically, uh, we want to see that tension dealt with by the end of the story, where all the stress and the tension is resolved, and the bad guys are done away with, and there is finally relief in the end. In fact, I've seen people get mad. They get mad at movies or get mad at books when, when the, it just kind of leaves everything hanging. Uh, now, when we read the, the book of Ephesians, we, we see something that is, is the opposite of what we would want in a, in a good story, uh, in, a, in a good movie, uh, in the sense that the book begins on a high and peaceful and triumphant note as it speaks of God's glorious redemptive plans where God is uniting all things in Christ. And through the gospel, he is building this unity through tearing down walls of division between man and God and between people groups and between husbands and wives and between servants and masters. God's building this new community. He calls it the church, and this community is filled with people who are increasingly growing into the image and likeness of Christ. They're putting on the new self, as Paul writes in Ephesians 4, the new self created after the likeness of God. And it would have been great then if Paul then would have just ended the book and said, now go and have a great time, guys, and enjoy this new life and a smooth sailing from here on out. But instead, things take a dark turn near the end of the book uh, in chapter 6, where we discover that the immediate result of God's redemption isn't uh, happily ever after. Instead, it's all-out war. And he says in Ephesians 6.10, that we need to suit up for battle. Because as the church seeks to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that we've been called to, we discover that there are powerful beings opposing us. And this is why living the Christian life can be so hard. Because verse 12 tells us that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. And so the apostle Paul, at the end of this book, exposes a deep, dark, organized conspiracy to keep Harbin's church from being everything that Harbin's church should be. The satanic powers absolutely hate this church. Now, the satanic powers hate all gospel churches. I'm saying this church because I want to make it personal for us, not out there, but here. There's warfare here. He hates this church because the last thing that he wants is to have a community full of people uh, renewed and recreated in the likeness of God, imaging Christ to the world. Satan hates Jesus, which means that the more that you look like Jesus the bigger the target is on your back and the more fierce opposition we can expect to face. Uh, Opposition from beings that are stronger than you and smarter than you and more powerful than you. And so Paul doesn't end his letter with happily ever after. He ends it with a battle plan. And he writes in verse 13, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. Happily ever after is going to come. It's going to come later. 
because the, the end of Ephesians actually isn't the end of the story. You need to skip to the back of the Bible, and you'll see that. You'll get a glimpse of, of heaven, but we're not there yet. And in the meantime, the devil has declared war on the church, and yet we are not without resources. We have defenses, and we have weapons in this spiritual war. And to the degree that we all, as Harbin's church, are committed together as a united fighting force To the degree that we're committed to waging war God's way, we can emerge victorious against the schemes of the devil. So, with that said, let's take a look at the weapons of our warfare. Please stand with me now, out of honor and reverence, for the reading of the words of our God. Won't be expositing this whole passage today, but for the sake of context, I want to read all of this here. We'll look at some of the armor of God this week, and we'll look at the rest next time. We're going to start in verse 10 and read on down through verse 20. God's Word says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning, and thank you for your battle instructions. Father, I pray for your help and your mercy this morning. I come to this pulpit feeling weak, and I I guess that means that I'm exactly where you want me to be, because that forces me to depend on you. And Father, I'm sure that there are folks here who have come and who are watching by video this morning who feel weak as well. Father, I pray that you would be our strength, that we would stand in the strength of the Lord. And Father, I pray that even as we consider uh, Ephesians 6, that you would protect us from the schemes of the devil and that you would silence any spirit that would seek to cause confusion in our minds and in our hearts as we seek to hear from you this morning, Father. So would you bless the, the reading and the preaching and the meditation on your word this morning? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The Apostle Paul was familiar with armor, more familiar than he wanted to be. He was writing Ephesians while being held prisoner, perhaps even chained to a Roman guard. And it's easy to imagine Paul considering the equipment of his guard as he's writing. However, what often gets overlooked is that Paul is primarily drawing his battle imagery not from a Roman soldier, but from the Old Testament. Let's remember, Paul was a Jew. He was steeped in the Old Testament Scriptures. He was a Jewish scholar. 
And so as we look to the, uh, at the armor of God, we need to take a look at the Old Testament scriptures that Paul is alluding to, which is going to help us to understand not only something about God's armor, but something about the kind of satanic schemes that the armor protects us from. Now, today we're just going to look at the, the first two pieces of armor, but they are absolutely indispensable in the battle that you face. And the first piece of equipment is the belt of truth, the belt of truth. He says in verse 14, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth. The everyday clothes of a Roman soldier was a simple loose-fitting tunic, but he just couldn't charge in the battle with that tunic just kind of flapping around in the breeze. Uh, you could get easily tangled up in the middle of a heated battle. Uh, an enemy could grab it and yank you around and, and pull it up over your head. Going into battle with all of those loose ends flying around could be absolutely deadly. So, so the soldier had a, had a belt firmly fastened around his waist and he could gather all the loose ends and, and tuck everything that would ensnare him into the belt so that he could be free to run or, or fight without being tangled up or, or tripping or, or falling flat on his face. This just wasn't just in, in, the, in the Roman culture, but just throughout Bible culture in general, they wore these loose-fitting clothes. And often when they, if they have to do physical activity, they've got to get those things out of the way and tuck them in. Or, or, or gird them up. You probably have heard the expression, gird up your loins. That's, that's where that expression comes from. And the, the idea here is preparedness. No soldier is going to go into battle unprepared with all the loose ends unaccounted for. His tunic just kind of flapping around out there. He, he would instead have everything tucked away, his belt fastened securely, ready to go. And, and when that belt was buckled and tightened and his sword was strapped to it, it provided a sense of, of inner fortitude and strength and confidence. And so when Paul tells you that the first thing you need to do to withstand the devil's attacks is to fasten the belt of truth, what, what does he mean there? What's he, what's he thinking about? Now, some believe that Paul is talking about the truth of the gospel, sound doctrine. Could be the case. Certainly, the church must have sound doctrine. But having sound doctrine is not an end to itself. The truth of Scripture must affect our day-to-day life. And this is exactly the flow in the book of Ephesians, isn't it? Paul spends the first three chapters with high theology and doctrine. Then he moves uh, to a deep concern regarding how we're to live in light of, of that doctrine, making sure that that doctrine affects actually our hearts. And, and Paul's metaphor of the belt of truth is clearly borrowed from imagery that we find in Isaiah chapter 11, which describes King Messiah who ushers in a new era. And we are told that righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Now, interestingly, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which first century Christians use, actually translates that verse as saying, truth is the belt of his loins. So the the Septuagint translators saw these concepts of truth and faithfulness tightly connected. And when you consider the imagery of King Messiah in Isaiah 11, we see that this coming Savior has truthful faithfulness as, as the belt of his loins. He's a Messiah who rules with integrity. And I think that's Paul's primary concern in Ephesians 6. He's calling the church to be a people of integrity, of faithfulness, of, of truthful authenticity. The Puritan William Gurnall, who wrote the classic book, The Christian in Complete Armor, speaks of the belt of truth as having a true or sincere heart. 
Similarly, John Calvin writes that the belt of truth directs our attention to the fountain of sincerity. For the purity of the gospel, he says, ought to remove from our minds all guile and from our hearts all hypocrisy. John MacArthur writes that to be girded with the truth uh, forsakes hypocrisy and sham. Every encumbrance that might hinder his work for the Lord is gathered and tucked into his belt of truthfulness so that it'll be out of the way. It's the kind of life that God calls Israel to in the book of Joshua, where God says, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Notice that there in that passage that there is uh, that the sincere, truthful faithfulness that God calls them to also consists of them putting away their idols. It's not a half-hearted service, but a genuine, single-minded devotion. It's what David uh, is getting at in Psalm 51 when he says that God delights in truth in the inner being. This is faithful integrity. This is authenticity. God's not interested in religious hypocrisy where we act the right way on the outside, but inside we have all of these undealt with sins. The new community that God is building in the church is not meant to be fake and phony and just an outward show. God hates that. And we get a sobering reminder of how God feels about this in Isaiah chapter 1. Very, very powerful chapter where God rebukes His people. And he says, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats. Uh, When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you, even though you make many prayers. I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Now that's striking. God is rejecting the sacrifices and the religious observances and the prayers of Judah. In fact, God pushes further and says that He hates those things. Now, does anybody see the irony in that Scripture? Who was it that commanded them to do all those things in the first place? God did! Uh, And yet now God turns around and says to the people, I've had it! I've had, I hate this. Stop this. Why? Isaiah 29 gives us the the bigger picture where God says the people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In the New Testament, Jesus confronts this issue over and over again with the Pharisees who were steeped in all kinds of outward religiosity, and he calls them whitewashed tombs. In other words, they look pretty on the outside, but inside they're full of dead men's bones rotting bones. Elsewhere, Jesus says these people, they clean the outside of the cup and they neglect the inside, which is filthy. God doesn't want a people like this. God desires truth in the inward being. Do we need sound doctrine? Of course, absolutely. But he expects more than mere head knowledge. He wants doctrine to work its way so deep into our inner being that it comes out and manifests itself in in a real authentic walk 
with Jesus. Uh, this, is, this is crucial to really living the Christian life. And, and this is why in chapter 3, Paul prays that the Ephesians will be strengthened in their inner being. But in contrast, one of the schemes of the devil is to get you comfortable with a lack of integrity, uh, to get you comfortable with a lifestyle that appears holy and respectable and even impressive to other people who are watching you. But inside, you're cherishing all kinds of sin in your heart. Hey, it's the best of both worlds, right? Be seen as an upstanding Christian and enjoy the sins of the heart at the same time. Pretty good deal. How many churches all across America this morning are full of people like that? How many pulpits are full of pastors like that? that honor God with their lips, and yet their hearts are far from Him. How many people are like that right here in this room? You say the right things, you go to church every week, or, or, you're, or you're watching online right now every week, you give money in the offering, you, you, you talk the right way when people are listening, you may even be involved in ministry, but you know that you're living a lie. Your heart is far from God. You lack integrity. Uh, that belt of truth is not firmly buckled around your waist. If, if that's you, hear me this morning. And I'm taking my cue from Isaiah 1. God hates what you're doing. He isn't impressed by you being here. He isn't impressed by you watching this stream online. He isn't impressed by your offerings or your, or your ministries or your prayers if you're living in comfortable hypocrisy. You're enjoying a superficial comfort, but it comes at a cost, because hypocrisy always makes us feel distant from God. God says in Isaiah 1, what I just read, if you live this way, I won't even listen to your prayers. He says, when you spread out your hands, I'll hide my eyes from you. Undealt with sin, hypocritical living, not having that belt of truth firmly tightened will ruin your prayer life. There is a connection between an inauthentic lifestyle and a powerless prayer life, which always results in a powerless Christian life. Uh, we see something similar in 1 Peter 3, 7, where husbands are told to live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. By the way, that verse, as a husband, that verse always terrifies me. Faking it, Having undealt with sin in your heart is like the Roman soldier going into battle and he's got all these loose ends flapping around in the breeze. He's tripping on them. He's getting entangled in them. He can't be effective in, in the battle and what he's supposed to do. And such a person is a sitting duck in spiritual warfare. And so the author of Hebrews tells us to instead lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Here the imagery is not warfare, it's racing. But the point is the same. Before the race, the athlete, like the soldier, is tucking in, tucking away all those loose ends of his tunic that are going to easily entangle him so he can freely compete and he can run effectively to win. To be a person who compromises truth and integrity, who acts one way outwardly but lacks truth in the inner being, is like that Roman soldier getting entangled and tripping, uh, getting tripped up by the loose ends because his belt wasn't firmly secure. And you can become paralyzed in your Christian walk if you're like that. There was a time in my own life, early in my Christian walk, where I went through a period of, of serious hypocrisy. Now, I hadn't rejected the Lord and, you know, all those sorts of things. I, I, I didn't apostatize, but, but I was really uh, 
was really struggling with some things. And I guess part of the problem was I wasn't struggling too hard. Um, I was just going through the motions of Christianity while, while having just a lot of undealt with junk and garbage in my heart. And I wasn't fully repented and, and, and my conscience was tormented and I became spiritually paralyzed like, like an entangled person. I felt like I couldn't effectively encourage people to break free from sins because I wasn't fighting it too hard in my own life. I was paranoid, lived in fear of being exposed as a hypocrite. And so instead of, of reaching out and serving others, I, I, I withdrew and became inwardly focused and it was truly miserable and it was dreadfully lonely. Uh, it, it, was, it was probably some of the worst, I think it was the worst time I've ever experienced as, as a Christian, I was tangled up in that mess and I was rendered powerless in my Christian walk. Did, I didn't have the, the sense of strength and confidence and inner fortitude like that Roman soldier has when that belt is firmly in place. I didn't feel that way spiritually. I had all these loose ends flapping about in the breeze, tripping me up, distracting me, hindering me. I felt like I couldn't truly live and experience all the joy there was to be had in the Christian life because I didn't have that belt of truth firmly secured. If you struggle here, if, that, if I'm describing you right now, before you do anything else, you've got to come clean, and you've got to shed the duplicity. Uh, you've got to protect yourself in the battle by having that belt of truth firmly fastened around your waist, else you are a sitting duck for the devil, frustrated and powerless and completely tangled up and tripping over and over and over again. If that's you, constantly tripping up and falling on the battlefield, you need help. You need the church. You need fellow soldiers to come alongside you and help you through prayer, through speaking God's truth to you, through accountability to, to help you tuck away all those loose ends so that you can fight freely. Again, William Gurnall, writing about the belt of truth, says that sincerity is the strength of every grace. The more hypocrisy in our graces, the weaker they are. It is sincere faith which is the strong faith, sincere love, which is the mighty love. Hypocrisy is to grace as the worm is to the oak or as rust is to iron. It weakens because it corrupts. Uh, an even wiser man, Solomon, wrote in Proverbs eleven three that the integrity of the upright guides them, but the crookedness of the treacherous destroys them. There is, there is a safety and a protection and truthfulness of heart, and so therefore have the belt of truth firmly fastened on. That's your first piece of armor. Next is the breastplate of righteousness, the breastplate of righteousness. Paul says, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. The Roman breastplate was a, a large piece of leather, bronze, chain mail, could be either any, any of those things, and it actually covered the back and the front of the soldier from his neck to his thighs, protected the vital organs, and it was an absolutely essential piece of armor. No, no one's going to go into battle without a breastplate. And in spiritual warfare, our breastplate is righteousness. And I agree with John Calvin, who said that the righteousness that Paul is talking about here has to do with a practical, moral righteousness that the believer is to strive for. It's essentially holy living. And once again, we're helped by remembering that Paul is drawing from the Old Testament. And again, he's, he's going back to the book of Isaiah, this time Isaiah 59, which Jared read earlier, which depicted God as a man of war, as one who sees evil and injustice running rampant, and there's no one to save, and there's no one to rescue. And so the Lord takes up his weapons and his armor and goes into battle against the forces of evil personally. And we're told in Isaiah 59, 17, that he put on righteousness as a breastplate. 
The wickedness that abounds in Isaiah 59 is contrasted by God's righteous character. It is a means by which he fights and overthrows wickedness. And with that in mind, the Apostle Paul tells you to do likewise, to to put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, the, the breastplate of righteousness and the belt of truth are similar, but with slightly different emphasis. Whereas the belt of truth emphasizes truth in the inner being and how it should match what one professes outwardly, the breastplate of righteousness appears to emphasize a genuine outward expression of what should already be true in the inner being. And of course, that's one of the major themes of Ephesians. Again, I draw your attention to Ephesians 4.24, where Paul urges us to put on the new self. Notice, by the way, the similar language here. Uh, In Ephesians 6, he's telling you to put on the breastplate of righteousness. Ephesians 4, put on the new self or the new man. And when Paul says put on the new self, he's talking about your outward lifestyle. He's talking about your practical holiness. He says, put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness. And we see that fleshed out in the many commands we're given through the rest of Ephesians. Just a few examples. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Or, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Or, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You see the pattern here? There's a a constant refrain from Paul to live righteously based on who we already are. You are in Christ, so put on Christ. Put on the, the character of Christ. You've already become a new person. You're already a child of God. You've already been forgiven by Christ. You've already been loved by Christ who gave himself up for you. Now, church, live like it. Be who you already are. Live, let how you live outwardly reflect your new identity. Paul says that this type of righteous life is like armor, protecting your vital organs. Without this piece of armor, our hearts will be pierced on the battlefield. When I think of the importance of the breastplate of righteousness, I always think of King David and his adultery with Bathsheba. In 2 Samuel 11... You get the sense, and, and the writer is very subtle about this, but, but he implies that even before the adultery, something is not quite right with David. He's not seeking to fully live up to his callings and responsibilities as God's king. All the other kings are going out to war. David stays home. All Israel goes out to battle, but Israel's leader doesn't. The rigors of war are contrasted with David's ease and luxury in his palace, as if he's grown weary and tired of warfare and he's on vacation. And his guard is down, and he sees a beautiful woman, and he gives in to his sinful desires, and one night of pleasure ushers in devastating consequences. And this is a perfect example of something I think all of us are familiar with, because all of us have sinned. When we are tempted to sin, we never really, in a clear and rational way, clearly think through the possible consequences of our sin, do we? My moments of clarity always come after the sin is committed, unfortunately. All we think about in the moment of temptation is how delightful it will be, how great it will be, Uh, depending on the temptation, how helpful it will be if we give in to that temptation just for a moment. 
how pleasurable it will be if we just ease up, if we, if we just relax from the battle, just relax our guard, uh, just, just take off that breastplate for just a little while. It's hard work walking around with that breastplate on. Sometimes it's uncomfortable. I need a break. God understands. I'm only human after all. I need this. It's no big deal. No one will ever know. So who's going to get hurt? Do those voices sound familiar? Have you heard those before? If you listen close enough, you'll hear the hiss through a forked tongue. In the moment of temptation, we never think about the devastating effects that our lies, our anger, our pride, our adultery, our pornography, our coveting, our stealing, our addictions may have down the road. We never think about those things. You see, this is one of the devil's schemes, one of his methods. This is one of the ways he's going to attack you. I'm giving you a heads up here. Bible gives you a heads up here. The devil overplays the potential benefits you'll get from engaging in a sinful act, and he downplays the consequence, and he does it every single time, and we've been played for thousands of years. Did God really say you couldn't eat from any tree in the garden, Eve? You won't die, for God knows that, that, that if you eat of that tree, you'll be like God. The devil's been using this scheme from the very beginning, overplaying the benefits, downplaying the consequences. And so then all you can think about is how good it'll feel to spew out your anger towards that person. Just give him a piece of your mind. Fire off that angry tweet. All you can think about is how easy it will be to get out of that uncomfortable situation if you just tell a little white lie. All you can think about is the rush of excitement you'll get when you click on that mouse button and go to a website to look at things you shouldn't be looking at. And in that moment of temptation, you need to know that the devil is beckoning you to take off that breastplate. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. Just relax. No big deal. No one's going to get hurt. Take a break. You deserve this. The devil is beckoning you to come closer with one hand, holding out the pleasures of sin, while, while his other hand is behind his back, clutching a dagger that he is about to thrust into your hearts. And sometimes the wounds caused by our sins run deeper than we ever thought that they would. And the healing takes longer than we ever thought. And sometimes even after the healing, there's a scar. I know, I've got some. But here's the thing. When you take off the breastplate and you fall into sin, the damage done is always worse than you think it's going to be. And before you get that breastplate back on, you've already been stabbed multiple times. And often the one sin you plan to give into gives way to many sins that you thought that you would never do. Committing just one sin very often never ends up being just one sin. In David's case, he committed adultery bad enough. But then he tried to cover it up, so he fell into lying and deceit. And then that didn't work, and he committed murder, murdering her husband. And then he lied to the kingdom about it. Y'all, all he wanted was a, was a little evening of secret pleasure, and then move on. No big deal, Right? Brothers and sisters, when you play with sin, you may want to move on, but sin never wants to move on. David got what he wanted and got a lot more than he bargained for. And that always happens when you don't take the warfare seriously 
and you set that breastplate aside. And of course, in David's case, that led to the, the loosening of the belt of truth because, it, because in the cover-up, he was becoming a hypocrite. And his conscience was tortured, and he was living a double life. And Psalm 51, which is David's prayer of confession and repentance, he asked God to restore to him the joy of his salvation. So you know what that means? That means that there wasn't any joy there in the wake of his sin. Uh, There was internal anguish and there was torment. And that joy needed to be restored because he lost it. Now, David was forgiven and David was restored, but the ramifications of his sin affected him and his family and his children and his kingdom all the days of his life and beyond. And all because for just one moment, he removed his spiritual breastplate. And, and all it took was a moment. That's all it takes is a moment of letting your guard down. And the devil pounced on him. Spiritual battle is serious. You, you, you don't mess around with sin. You don't mess around with Satan. You don't flirt with the enemy. I can think of times in my own life where I've gotten in, in or I've given in to sinful temptations and on the other side of it, in the midst of painful consequences and a broken heart and a weakened relationship with the Lord, I, I, I lament and I say, why in the world was I so stupid? If only I could turn back the clock and make things different. You ever thought that in the wake of your sin? It's exactly how the foolish young man in Proverbs felt. He fell for the seductive pleasures of sin and he got burned and he cries out in Proverbs 5, how I hated discipline And my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin. I can relate to that guy. I've said things like that. I felt that way on the other side of a sinful fall. I know what what it's like. I felt the pangs of sin. And I know what John Owen meant when he said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. But thanks be to God, I also know what it feels like to live rightly. And I've learned over the years that there is a safety, there is a protection, there is a security in doing things God's way and having that breastplate firmly in place. And there have been wonderful times where instead of lamenting the past, I'm celebrating. Thank God I didn't do what I was tempted to do. I'm so happy. Thank God there's a peace and stability and joy uh, in my life because I did the godly thing. William Gurnall writes that righteousness and holiness are protection to defend the believer from the wounds inflicted by sin. He writes that your holiness is what the devil wants to steal from you. He will allow a man to have anything or be anything rather than be truly powerful and holy. Ephesians 4 speaks of the spiritual protection that comes with holy living, where Paul exhorts us to put off sinful anger and seek immediate reconciliation. And in doing so, he says we actually prevent the devil from gaining a foothold in our lives because the devil is repelled by righteousness. Now, we see this very explicitly in James chapter 4, verse 7, where James says, submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. That's a promise, 2 Corinthians 6, 7 speaks of the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. This is how you fight back and guard yourself from Satan as he seeks to bring you down. Now, David's uh, situation was a negative illustration of the importance of the breastplate of righteousness. Let me give you a positive one. And this is Joseph in the book of Genesis. You remember Joseph sold into slavery by his brothers to Egypt, and he ends up in the house of Potiphar as a slave, and he begins to be tempted 
by Potiphar's wife to engage in adultery. Same temptation, different outcome. It might have even been a stronger temptation because the, the woman's coming after him. And, and David's situation, he was going after her. It, it was a powerful temptation, as it was with David. Surely no one would ever know. Husband wasn't home, same as in David's situation. There are all kinds of ways he could have justified the, the sin. This isn't going to hurt anyone. Besides, she's an authority over me, and I should just go along with what she says and not cause any trouble. Besides, maybe I'll gain her favor. Perhaps she'll free me one day. All kinds of ways that you could justify that sin. And yet, what does Joseph do? He already has put on the breastplate of righteousness, and he says to her in Genesis 39, 9, Potiphar is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you're his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? In the, in, in the, in the Deemer Web version of the Bible, that verse is translated as, are you crazy? What are you talking about? Joseph is not interested in seeing how far he can go without getting burned. And that, by the way, is the attitude of too many people in our churches. We always want to know how far we can go, how close to the line we can get. Young people, I know this is a temptation, especially young, young dating people. Often the question arises, well, well, how far can we go with affection and those sorts of things without sinning, without, without crossing the line? It's a bad question. Instead of asking how far we can go, because now, now you're moving towards loosening that armor, instead of asking how far can we go, let us instead fasten on even more securely the breastplate of righteousness and ask the question, how pure can we stay? Isn't that a better question? Once we start approaching our life from that perspective, we're protecting ourselves from the schemes of the devil having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, as we get ready to close, I recognize that this talk of a, of a life of faithful, true integrity and this talk of a righteous life can be depressing for some of you because you feel like you are failing here big time, and you feel like an unfaithful hypocrite. Maybe you're in despair because you haven't had that that, that breastplate firmly in place, and, and you're stung by self-inflicted wounds and and the only thoughts that are going through your head right now are accusatory, self-condemning thoughts about your own sin. I know what that's like. I've been there also. You need to recognize that if you are truly a Christian, then even when you have sinned, even when you have failed, even after the devil has knocked you down in spiritual warfare, you are not ultimately destroyed. Though you have not been faithful to God, Jesus, the divine warrior whom Isaiah has been pointing us to, is 100% faithful towards you. Faithfulness is the belt of his loins. Yes, God calls you to fight the wicked powers and principalities, but even though, even when you've been dealt a mighty blow and you've been knocked down, you need to know that Jesus is also fighting for you. And he says that I am the good shepherd. My sheep will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. He has the image, he gives the image there of a shepherd and wolves are coming and he takes his rod and he knocks the teeth out of those wolves. He fights for you. He fights for his people. And he's a better fighter than you are. We're tripping around trying to emulate his moves, but we don't always get it right. So be encouraged by his faithfulness this morning. Second, Maybe lately you've neglected that breastplate of righteousness and 
like David, you've relaxed your guard. You haven't been living Ephesians 4 through 6, you know, all, all these commands and exhortations we've been reading about these past few weeks. You haven't been speaking the, the truth in love. You haven't been forgiving someone who's offended you. You're not rightfully imitating God. You're not being the kind of husband or wife or parent or child that you should be. And so, like David in Psalm 51, you've lost the joy of your salvation, and it needs to be restored this morning. If that's you, then I urge you to do what David did in the wake of his sin eventually. Don't wait as long as he did. Don't wait for somebody to come and, you know, you are that man, <laughs> what Nathan had to do to to, to David, get it, get it right right now, seek his forgiveness, repent, take heart, my friend. One of, the, one of the schemes of the devil is not just to knock you down, but to keep you down. He's going to say, you've already blown it. You might as well just wallow in your failure and keep on sinning. There's no future for you. You ever heard that one before? Boy, we're... We're all hearing the same voices. We all have a common enemy. And he uses the same tactics. And what he's saying is not true. What the Word of God says is true, that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. King David himself understood that while in the aftermath of a, of a, of a fall into sin can be very painful, that there can also be a restoration of joy for the one who returns to the Lord in humble repentance. David, in his uh, prayer of repentance, after his heinous sins, rightfully acknowledged in Psalm 51 that a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And in Psalm 32, David gives hope for fallen sinners when he says, blessed or happy is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. And at the end of the Psalm, he says, be glad in the Lord, and rejoice. He says that in the wake of his own sin and having returned to the Lord. And why, why does the Bible speak in this way? Because as important as your own faithfulness and righteousness is in the temporal battles that you fight, the righteousness that is providing you with ultimate eternal protection is not your own faithfulness and righteousness. If you stand before God on the basis of your own faithfulness and righteousness, you're going to be condemned to hell because you aren't faithful and righteous. But the gospel tells us that there is one who has already been perfectly faithful and perfectly righteous for us. Jesus does Ephesians 4 through 6 perfectly. Jesus forgives even when you don't. Jesus loves his bride perfectly even though you don't. Jesus is the perfect son who honors and obeys his father all the time, even though we don't act that way in relationship to our heavenly father. You see, Jesus is everything that we couldn't be. He lived the life you couldn't live and died the death you deserve to die, enduring God's wrath for your sins and your place. And when we received Christ by faith, it means that not only does his death pay the price for our sins, but God has removed our filthy sinful clothes, and He's clothed us with new garments, which are the righteousness of Christ. And so even when the believer fails in personal, practical righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, which covers him, never fails. And so therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So I urge you this morning to not despair. Don't despair. Maybe you've been knocked down on the battlefield. But for the people of God, that's not the end of the story. Confess your sins, repent, ask God to restore the joy of your salvation, and rest assured of God's forgiveness, and then rise up, 
Put your armor back on and take your stand once again among your brothers and sisters in Christ and get back into the battle. And finally, I want to remind you that the armor of God is for believers only. If you're here this morning and you do not truly know Christ as Lord and Savior, then you are defenseless against the devil's accusations, and more importantly, you're defenseless against God's wrath. And so I implore you now to repent of your sins and believe and receive Jesus. Trust in Him today, and let His payment for sins be applied to your account. Let His righteousness be counted as yours. Receive His spotless clothes, receive His armor, and join God's army and become His newest foot soldier for the winning side. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you've given us battle instructions. Help us now to listen to our commander-in-chief. Help us to be equipped and prepared for the battle. Help us to fight as good soldiers, to fight with bravery, to fight with courage, to fight with conviction, to fight for your glory. And Father thank you for those times where we have failed to fight as we ought and we find ourselves laying flat on our back. Thank you, Father, that there is a righteousness greater than our own that covers us and protects us and enables us to get back up and to keep moving forward towards our final destination, towards our happily ever after when the battles are all over. Thank you, Father, for your grace and mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.